Hello and welcome to another episode of Prickly Politics. This is WFUV's podcast on New York City and state politics. I'm your host, Julia Agos, and today we're going to be talking about education funding and school segregation in New York City. I'm joined again by our chief political reporter, Andrew Millman. Andrew, thanks for being here. Yeah, great to be here, Julia. Let's talk some education. All right, sounds good. So, New York City's public school system is the largest in the nation. 1,800 public schools in the city teach over a million students with a whopping $34 billion budget. But as you'll hear from our guests in today's episode, that $34 billion isn't always distributed fairly. And that funding disparity has some pretty serious ramifications. Many schools in New York City are underfunded, and the lack of funds leads to segregation. This issue has made headlines in the news over the past few years. In 2014, the Civil Rights Project from UCLA released a study that called New York State one of the most segregated schools in the nation. Gary Orfield, who is the co-director of the CRP, said that in the 30 years he'd been researching schools, New York State has consistently been one of the most segregated states in the nation. And he said no southern state comes close to New York. So for this episode, we're going to break down the issue into two parts. First, we're going to talk about school funding and why there's such a disparity among schools in New York City. We have Senator Robert Jackson on the show because he's been a key player in this field for decades. And then second, we're going to see how funding inequality leads to segregation. And to explain this to us, we have Coco Rum on the show. She's a high school activist from Teens Take Charge, which is an organization working to combat school segregation. So to start off, Andrew, how do these two issues play into each other. Urban school districts like New York City do not get enough funding. And then when school districts have to distribute this funding, it often goes to the higher income and whiter schools within that district to the detriment of low-income students and students of color to a large extent. So these issues kind of compound each other, all to the detriment of some of, of the most vulnerable students in the system. Right. So before we play our interview with Senator Jackson, a little context is necessary. Jackson was one of the leading figures in the Campaign for Fiscal Equity, or the CFE, which was a lawsuit against New York State in 1993. Jackson and his colleague Michael Rebell, who Jackson mentions in the interview, claimed that students have a constitutional right to a sound, basic education. And they accused the state of violating that right by underfunding many public schools. The lawsuit took 13 years to unfold, but Jackson and Rebell ended up winning. So in 2007, the Fair Student Funding Formula, or the FSF, was established. The formula is supposed to take into account the number of students enrolled at each school and the needs of those students. So schools supposedly get extra money for students who are poor, who have a disability, who are struggling academically, or who are learning English. The idea is that schools with students who require more assistance or special attention can use those extra funds to cater to those needs. But as Senator Jackson will explain, that's not always what happens. He says the problem lies in how the formula has been implemented. So Senator Jackson is going to talk to us about how he got involved in the CFE lawsuit. He also explains why that formula, the FSF, is not working for New York City schools. Jackson is a freshman state senator. He was elected in 2018 after he ousted a member of the IDC during the Democratic primary. 
Yeah, he is kind of unique among the candidates that took out IDC members in the last election, being that he's not a political newcomer. He's been around New York state politics for decades. That's right. He now represents part of the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Andrew and I sat down with him in our studio here at WFUV Public Radio. Senator, welcome to Prickly Politics. Thank you so much for um, coming up here and being in studio with us. It's a it's an honor to meet you. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. And I'm a newbie here at the studio. So thank you very much. I hope to come back again. Definitely. So we would just like to start off by talking a little bit about your history. Obviously, we know about your history with the CFE lawsuit and your work in school funding and integration. And so what I wanted to start off with is just by asking you, how did you first start working on these issues? <laughs> well, it, it goes back uh, around the time that my wife and I registered our youngest, our oldest daughter at our local school. And uh, when she went to register our daughter, who's now 43 and an MD, they asked her to get involved in a parents' association. She said, okay, I'll send my husband. And so off I went. And I joined the parents' association and was involved in the parents' association at PSIS 187 in Washington Heights for 19 continuous years. And in 1986, they ran me for the school board. When I literally say they ran me, I didn't say, hey, I want to run for the school board. Why don't you support me? No, it didn't happen that way. They ran me that will truly represent the people of PSI's 187. That's how it started. <laughs> and then in the 90s, you start the Campaign for Fiscal Equity and the CFEV New York lawsuit. Yeah. So I was on the school board from 86 until I was a, basically elected to the uh, city council. So I served for about 15 years on the school board, uh, elected to five terms of office. And during that term of uh, probably 89, uh, when I was elected the president of the school board, every summer they had what they call a consultative council. That's where the 32 school board sends the representatives down to the central board. We meet and discuss issues and concerns. And one of them that's always discussed in the summertime is the budget. <laughs> and where uh, for about one or two years going down there, every time I had to come back and communicate to the superintendent and the, and the community school board six in northern Manhattan that they were cutting our budget let's say a million, million and a half dollars. And then we would have to then decide on where those cuts were going to take place in the various schools. And that's what started the campaign for fiscal equity. I turned to Michael Rebell, who was our attorney at the time, and said, Michael, something has to be done. We can't continuously have these cuts. And Michael said, listen, there was a group that filed a lawsuit 10 years earlier on Long Island. It went to the highest court in the state of New York, and they didn't win. And I said, Michael, I don't want to hear it. You are our attorney. Find a way to get it done. And in fact, that's exactly what he did. He formed with me the Campaign for Fiscal Equity, and we filed it with two claims. One, that New York State was discriminating against the children of New York City because New York City was 84% children of color. And you know what I mean by children of color, of course. And the, and so they were discriminating against New York City. And then number two, the formula, every single year, they backloaded the formula, literally backloaded it so that New York City would get the same exact percentage every single year. And we proved that in court. And we finally won. After 13 years of litigation, we went to the highest court on three different occasions. And if you don't know, Michael Rebell, the same attorney that filed the lawsuit in May of 1993, 
He filed another lawsuit in February 2014 because the state has not lived up to its obligation, and currently they owe New York State children $4 billion. And of New York City, about $1.5 or $1.3, depending on who you ask, New York City is owed that much money. Now, you mentioned that funding still isn't equitable for New York City and other parts of the state. Why is that? Well, it's based on the formula. And so, for example, uh, this fiscal year, I went to visit schools around the state of New York. So where did I go? Rochester, New York. I went to visit some schools and I talked to parents and education leaders in Rochester. Syracuse, New York, same thing. Schenectady, New York, same thing. Out on Long Island, Brentwood, and some others went somewhere else. And I went to about six to eight different schools throughout districts throughout the entire state. And did you know, and most people are shocked when they hear this, Rochester, New York, if you go and Google Rochester, New York, and it, education, they say, oh, there's some good schools there. But they're not talking about the inner schools in the city of Rochester. They're talking about the suburbs. Rochester, New York, is like the, I think, the eighth poorest school district in the country, 60% black and about 45% Latinx and very poor from an economic point of view. And as a result of that, it's the eighth poorest school district in the country. And what is the 10th poorest school district in the country? Syracuse, New York, 50% black, 40-some percent Latinx, very poor also, 10th poorest school district in the country. So I did that in order to highlight the inequity of funding and how these schools and these districts need that part of that $4 billion. So Rochester's owed about $2,900 per student, rounded off to $3,000. They have about 28,000 students. That's a lot of money. New York City, people think that upstate, oh, you just want to take the money from upstate and give it to New York City because New York City is owed about $1.3 or $1.5 billion. But don't forget, we have over a million students in New York City, whereas 28,000. And when you look at Buffalo, Buffalo only has about, the city of Buffalo has no more than about 100,000 people to living. So this is the issue and concern that impact not only the current students, but future students, and it impacts the economic development of our great state. The more education you receive, more than likely you are going to be a positive asset to whatever area you live in, and that means your families will benefit from it from a health point of view, from a housing point of view, and all of the things that matter. Governor Cuomo called the CFE lawsuit a ghost of the past. Oh, please. I thought you would have that reaction. Please, um, let me tell you. I tell, I say to you, he said, CFE is a ghost of the past and a distraction to the present. He's the distraction to the present. And why do I say that? Why do I say that? Because we had a court decision that agreed with us in 2006. And even at the time when he said that, and there was, you know, back and forth in the media on that, and Elliot Spitzer even said, that yes, the kids are entitled to it. He sort of bashed Elliot Spitzer about the situation that forced him to resign, you know what I mean? Trying to make him look bad. And maybe one thing is what he did personally, but as far as education, he said what he was going to do and he did it. That's not the same with our governor. Our governor will keep saying he's increased education. Yes, he has increased education. And in fact, let me say this to you. This past budget cycle, the State Board of Regents, the Commissioner of Education, State Education, testified at the budget hearing, and they said that this $1.6 billion they're asking for this year in order to deal with, then a couple of years later, we can deal with the rest of the money. So everyone, meaning the Assembly, the Senate, the State Commissioner of Education, the State Board of Regents, talked about at least $1.1 billion. 
the governor this uh, fiscal year said 618 million, not anywhere close what is needed and what our children are entitled to. And so that's what it is. And he has been the distraction because the State Board of Regents says yes, the Commissioner of Education says yes, the State Senate and the State Assembly. The only other person that matters in the room is the governor. So what would your message be to Governor Cuomo if you had him in the room right now? We want the children of New York City to receive the opportunity to have that quality education, just like your daughters. They want, we want them to go to the best schools also. But in order to go to the best schools, you have to have that foundation, and that's so important. You have to have parental involvement, but you must have the system to provide the opportunity because you know why? They're guaranteed that opportunity for sound basic education by the state, New York State Constitution. The governor has a bit of a different theory of the case. He put forward that the state is giving enough money to school districts, but the school districts then turn around and don't give the money to the poorest and most needy schools. And he, he's put forward his education equity formula that he thinks would remedy this. Do you think that's helpful at all? Michael Rebell, the attorney that was the lead attorney in the campaign for fiscal equity and under this new lawsuit we found in February 2014, said that the formula has not been changed since 2007. If they want to talk about changing the formula, let's sit down and do that. That has not happened. I do think, though, that with respect to that, there's not enough money in the system because every school is entitled to money based on their population and the needs. So, for example, if you have Title I eligibility, meaning that the students in the school, their incomes are very low, uh, they're entitled to more money. If, in fact, your students are not performing very well, then from a district-wide or state point of view, you give them more money in order for them to bring up their, their level of performance. That's what it is. And so the governor has some respect, some points that were made. So, for example, one of the things that, that's loud and clear is that when the Republicans controlled the New York State Senate, they made sure their schools got everything they wanted. And I'm talking mainly specifically Long Island, which, if you don't know, let me just talk politics for a second. There were nine New York State senators from Long Island. There's currently still nine, but six of them are now Democrats. As a result of the 2018 elections, six of those Republicans lost. And so now they don't have the type of control that they had. Now we have leadership under the Andrews to a cousin. So I say to you that give our students what they rightfully deserve, and we can make sure that every school receives the type of money that they're entitled to under the formula. So can you talk to me a little bit about what happens to those students who don't receive the sound education that you're talking about? There's a lot of things that happen to them. They don't get the opportunity in order to receive all of the high-level advanced courses that many students in the suburbs receive, advanced placement courses. And so even when they graduate from high school, then they may have a grade of, oh, well, you scored 85 in, in math and 80 in science and what have you. And when they take the regents' exams, majority of them do not pass the regents' exam. So what does that say as far as preparation to take these exams? But also, when many of the high school students in New York City, uh, and I would assume in Rochester and Syracuse and other areas like that, if they get accepted to college, and I hope they apply and get accepted, then they cannot perform at the level 
of expectation. So they take remedial courses in order to bring them up to speed. And I was one of those students. When I graduated from Benjamin Franklin High School in 1969, it took me five years to graduate from college. But no, what it is is that, in my opinion, the current educational system in New York City and I guess other places where there's high need are not educating our children at the level where they can go straight into college and perform on an average of every other college student. Senator, thank you so much for coming down to our studio again. It's a fascinating conversation, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Our next interview is with Coco Rum. She's the Director of Policy for Teens Take Charge. The organization formed in 2016 and now has over 60 active high school student members. Their goal is to racially, socioeconomically, and academically integrate New York City's public schools. Coco talks about the realities of being in a school system that is so segregated, and she argues that students have a right to learn alongside a diverse group of people. Andrew got a chance to interview her over the phone a little while ago. Tell me how you got started with Teens Take Charge. Um, So I guess I can start with my beginning in the integration movement, which wasn't with Teens Take Charge. Um, But I was a sophomore in high school, and I've gone to um, very white and well-resourced schools my entire life. Um, So I kind of thought that that's what all public schools looked like. And so when I was a sophomore in high school, I was in a meeting of the Women's Empowerment Club that I was a part of. And a student speaker came in, and she talked about um, school segregation, which I thought was something that had been unconstitutional for decades, and that wasn't a relevant issue anymore. But um, she really opened my mind to the issue and kind of shifted my entire perspective on both my path in the education career as someone who has attended, um, you know, selective schools that are disproportionately white and wealthy, And then also made me feel like it was really my duty as a student um, and as a privileged student to take action. Um, And so I became involved with the movement initially through Integrate NYC um, and then through Teams Take Charge. I met Taylor at a meeting and he's our adult facilitator at Teams Take Charge. And he asked me if I could be interviewed for a podcast that um, The Bell, which is Teams Take Charge's parent organization, makes. Um, And so I agreed, and from there I became involved with Teens Take Charge, Um, and that was about, I would say, maybe November, December of 2017. Um, And so I've been involved ever since then, and I became the director of policy um, this fall. Now, how did Teens Take Charge itself get started? So the way it started was through this podcast that I had mentioned, Um, and so Taylor would shadow students. And so he went to a charter school called Democracy Prep, and he shadowed someone named Whitney Stevenson, and she's one of our co-founders. And Whitney and her best friend, Nelson, um, were kind of talking about the questions that Taylor had asked them, one of which was, do you have any white friends? Um, And they were both students of color in a school um, that was mostly Black and Latinx. And what they realized was that the answer to that question was no. And so this kind of, for them, made them feel like they wanted to express themselves, express their stories, and talk about school segregation. And so Teens Take Charge initially started as a storytelling vehicle, as a place for students to lift their voices up through the work of Whitney and Nelson. Um, And and from there, Teens Take Charge, you know, did events where students would do spoken word or deliver testimonies. Um, And then... 
you know, we would have panels. And from there, we kind of started developing a policy platform, um, the main aspect of which is the enrollment equity plan. Um, and so that's kind of how Team State Charge has evolved. But um, the starting was really with Whitney and Nelson at Democracy Prep High School. Your education equity plan goes beyond the elite public high schools, right? Yeah. So the conversation around um, education and school segregation has been really concentrated on specialized high schools, but um, at Team State Charge, we really believe that the problem is much more wide-spanning and that segregation is incredibly um, real and prevalent in the rest of our high schools, which there are over 450 of. Um, And so the Enrollment Equity Plan is a um, policy solution that was designed by students to help address the segregation in the rest of these schools. And so what that looks like is um, setting academic diversity cutoffs. So right now in the current system, your state test scores are very deterministic. If you have um, high state test scores, you have access to the full scope of schools, especially the highly selective screened schools. Um, But if your state test scores are not threes or fours, they're ones or twos, they're not really passing the state test. Um, You're really barred access from the full scope of schools. And so what that has led to is a concentration of academic segregation. So you'll have schools that are kind of composed of all students with threes and fours and all students with ones and twos. And those schools are also really segregated along race and class. So the schools that are composed of students with threes and fours tend to be predominantly white and Asian, whereas on the flip side, the student, the schools where there are high concentrations of students with ones and twos tend to be um, majority black and Latinx. And so what we've proposed is creating cutoffs that are centralized through the DOE's um, algorithm. And so what that would mean is that no more than 75% and no less than 25% of a school's incoming freshman class can have passed the state test. Um, And so by doing this, you're pushing schools into the median for academic diversity, which also has the effect of racially and socioeconomically integrating these schools, given the metric that's used, um, which is the state test. In June, Teen State Charge held a demonstration outside of the Department of Education headquarters. How do you feel that the Department of Education, the new school's chancellor, Richard Carranza, and Mayor de Blasio are doing on the issue? Um, So I think it's complicated. Quite frankly, I think the conversation has opened up a lot since Chancellor Carranza um, took office, and so that's been great to see. I think, though, that we've really seen no change when it comes to high school enrollment, Um, and so that is really problematic, of course, because every single year that the cycle continues, students continue to attend segregated schools, Um, and this, you know, is uh, deeply problematic. So I think um, we are really frustrated, especially with Mayor de Blasio, but also with the chancellor, for not taking action on school integration. Um, one of the common kind of justifications for delaying any type of action is, oh, we're waiting for the school diversity advisory group's report to come out. Um, I'm a member of that group, and so I understand that that process is quite important, but It also, um, quite frankly, feels like the mayor and the chancellor are the ones who are able to make change now and are stalling. And the UCLA report that called New York City schools among the most segregated came out around five years ago. Um, The School Diversity Advisory Group was appointed around two years ago. And so it's been 
a really long timeline for any school integration plan to even be named, let alone accepted and implemented. So I think we really take issue with the fact that no change has been made yet. Um, and as student advocates and as students who are in the system and who have faced segregation and who have experienced all the harms that segregation can cause in our lives, in our schools, um, in our communities, we feel like urgency is really critical here. And so um, we are going to continue to push and push. Now, I've read um, advocates of desegregation say that segregation hurts both the uh, students of color and the white students. Could you speak more on that from your personal experience? Um, I would say that that statement is definitely true. So school segregation hurts all students. Um, when we're not in classrooms learning beside each other, when we are not growing together and thinking together, we all suffer. Um, and it's harmful not only to kind of the way we think about the world, but how we enter the world as citizens, as members of democracy, um, school segregation has harmful effects on everyone, and school integration has positive effects that leads to um, all sorts of benefits, as social science shows. Um, and so I think that's really where school segregation harms everyone. But at the same time, the harm is also disproportionately affecting um, particularly Black and Latinx students because the reality is that, um, to borrow a phrase from Nicole Hannah-Jones, race is tied to resources in the school system. And but that also there's a disproportionate harm to Black and Latinx students um, in particular. Okay, great. Thank you so much for talking to me today. This was a really great conversation. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. So that's our show. If you liked today's episode, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us, please. That'll help other listeners find our podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Prickly Podcast to stay up to date in between episodes. A special thanks to our Prickly team, Andrew Millman, Maddie Bristow, and Helen Stevenson, and our editors, George Bodarki and Robin Shannon. Thanks for listening. Thank you.